0: Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And once again, I want to thank all of you for your support. Um, I never, ever thought that I would be doing this this long. I genuinely thought that maybe a couple people in my family might listen, and that was it. So I especially want to thank all the people listening from all over the world. I really, really appreciate it. Um, if you want to reach out, um, I- at Geek Flossy on both Twitter and Instagram. I love to hear from you guys. Um, if you want to show your support, um, you can drop by at patreon.com forward slash psychyourcrime. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, um, Venmo is at psych slash your slash crime. Um, we appreciate all the love and support. And if you can give us highest rating five stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on it really helps us out Um, it helps us get in those recommended lists which we really really appreciate and I just once again as always appreciate the fact that you're listening Um, like I said I never ever thought I would be able to do this this long Um, and now for this week we are going to look into the case of AJ Wilson and Patrick Nahol, an eight year long neighbor feud that ended in a shooting and an arson. This is a complex case that had multiple different aspects. First, you have two types of people who are extremely entitled. You have the everyday garden variety of entitlement that we all experience from time to time, and then you have narcissistic entitlement. Narcissistic entitlement refers to the belief that one's importance, superiority, or uniqueness should result in getting special treatment and receiving more resources than others. For example, individuals high in narcissistic entitlement think that they should get more respect, more money, and more credit for doing the same work as everyone else. Narcissistic entitlement also includes a willingness to demand this special treatment or extra resources. Narcissistic entitlement contains three main components. At the root of this, individuals believe they are uniquely superior. That is, they believe that they are different from others in ways that make them superior. Secondly, individuals with high levels of narcissistic entitlement feel that they are more deserving of special treatment and limited resources by virtue of their superiority and uniqueness. Finally, they are likely to demand the special treatment and resources to which they believe they are entitled, like receiving more of a share of something than other people or a paycheck that's larger compared to what other individuals in the same field earn. These demands may be in the form of verbal statements, but it also may come in the forms of aggressive and sometimes even violent behavior. Special treatment can include a wide range of things, but in general refers to an expectation of treatment that is unique and usually better from how others are treated. For example, individuals with high levels of narcissistic entitlement might demand the best seat at a restaurant or not to have to wait in line when everyone else does. They may demand to be called sir or doctor at times. They might refuse to allow other individuals to be critical or challenge them, even though their ideas or opinions may not line up with what is going on and as it's a courtesy that they definitely will not reciprocate narcissistic entitlement is traditionally measured with a short subscale of personality inventory as proposed proposed by robert raskin and howard terry in 1988 this scale has proven to predict narcissistic behavior very well but also to lack statistical reliability as a result w keith campbell and angelica m bonacci and Jeremy Shelton and Julie Exnelli and Brad Bushman have created other standalone measures of entitlement that have greater reliability. Can we talk about the fact that there is actually an entitlement scale? <laughs> that entitlement has gotten so out of hand in the past 30 years that people had to sit down and come up with an entitlement scale? <laughs> That's pretty sad. Narcissistic entitlement can have both positive and negative outcomes for the entitled individual. When individuals act in a narcissistically entitled way, they may actually receive better treatment or greater resources than others, much, much more than they deserve. For example, the person at the airline counter that says, I'm a very important business person and demands to be seated in first class might actually end up in a first class seat. However, the acts of narcissistic entitlement are often perceived by others as rude, selfish, and even pathetic. If upon landing, the businessman appears lost, the other passengers might simply ignore him rather than offering to help. Indeed, narcissistic entitlement by individuals often leads to scorn and replies such as, Who died and made you the king? Narcissistic entitlement can be a short-term and context-dependent state of mind. An individual might might display narcissistic entitlement in one situation but not in others. For example, a person may display narcissistic entitlement at home around their younger siblings, but not around their peers while they're in school. Narcissistic entitlement can also be a general feature of an individual's personality. Some individuals display more entitlement than others do across most situations and at most times. For example, a person might insist upon special treatment from their parents and deference from their siblings or demand an A from a professor in a class when she really earned a C and expect everyone to pay for her drinks while she's out. Now, the other component to this particular crime is mob or herd mentality. The term mob mentality is used to refer to unique behavioral characteristics that emerge when people are in large groups, and we've actually discussed this in the past and when we were dealing with satanic panic. It is often used in a negative sense because the term mob technically conjures up images of aggressive and chaotic people. Social psychologists who study group behavior also use terms such as herd behavior, herd mentality, or crowd hysteria to describe similar behaviors. The study of mob mentality is used to analyze situations that range from problems during evacuations and public gatherings that turn violent. The study of herd behavior considers groups of all animals, not just humans. People have been observing group behavior of flocks, herds, pods, and other assortments of animals for centuries. But it was not until the early 20th century that observers started applying scientific theories about crowd behavior to humans. Several books published in the 1910s discovered and discussed mob mentality, along with various ways to minimize or control it. One reason for herd behavior is that people and animals tend to do whatever the people around them are doing. This usually is because those who join the group in the behavior figure that if several others are doing something, it just must be worthwhile or they, might, or they shouldn't be doing it at all. For example, people figure that a crowded restaurant must be serving good food or it wouldn't be busy. In most cases, this thought process comes naturally or subconsciously which is one reason why animals take part in herd behavior. The term herd mentality is often used as something that involves more conscious thought than herd behavior. This type of mentality can be influenced by things such as peer pressure, conformity, and the need for acceptance and desire for a sense of belonging. These things often cause people who are in groups to behave the way that are similar to others. For example, a person might choose to listen to different music when in a group, than when they are alone because others might make fun of them. Another example might be a teenager who drinks alcohol and smokes cigarettes because of peer pressure from their friends. Other factors come into play when the term mom mentality is used to refer to something negative. Two of the main factors are greater anonymity exists with when within a group and the distribution of responsibility for the group's actions. These factors sometimes make a person believe that they can act in a certain way within a group and not have consequences that the same actions would have if they acted alone. For example, if a person is in a group that is vandalizing a building, he or she may believe there's less of a chance of getting caught than if they were acting alone because it would be more difficult to identify all the people who are involved. He or she also feel less guilt because if the other people are doing it, why shouldn't I be doing it? Another factor in mob mentality is the sense of confusion or even panic that can consist in a large group. An example of this can be seen when people in crowds suddenly begin rushing in one direction. Although many people in the group may not know why this is happening, they see the urgency in the group and begin rushing in that direction too. In extreme cases, the urgency and panic increases creating a sort of crowd hysteria, and some people might even get trampled as a great number of people try to move in the same direction as quickly as possible. Even for something as innocent as a department store sale, mob mentality might be evident as dozens of shoppers rush towards the sale items, push each other out of the way and fight over items. And that was the example that we used last time we talked about mob mentality was Black Friday. and that mom mentality gives way to mass hysteria oftentimes at black friday sales in the united states because people figure oh my god there's a limited number of items people are pushing people are shoving we have to get there There, it looks like there's a fight the items are going to be gone and you go from people calmly walking in the store to this throng of people all going the same direction and even if it's not what you went to the store for you end up in this giant throng of people fighting over something that you didn't even come there for. Um, so that's mob hysteria, uh, mob mentality and mass hysteria coming together. When Patrick Dolmage and his family moved to Madison Avenue in Flint, Michigan in 2000, they initially bonded with AJ Wilson and the others on the street. AJ was interested in being a mechanic and Patrick had begun teaching him and Patrick immediately began teaching him to make money on the side salvaging scrap. Patrick's wife became friends with a neighbor, Teresa Ines. The rift began when a friend of Patrick's had puppies. AJ asked for one, but the domages did not feel AJ could give the dog the attention it required, as it was known to be an extremely needy breed, so they gave the dog to a family in the neighborhood. This offended AJ a lot. Shortly after, a friend of AJ's Blew a stop sign and nearly hit one of Patrick's sons while the two boys were riding their bikes. Not knowing the individual personally, Patrick does what a rational person would do and calls the police. Again, as this is a friend of AJ's, he takes it personally. Believing Patrick should have come to him and talked to him about it. Like I said, any rational person, a stranger blows a stop sign, almost hits your kid, you're gonna call the cops. But AJ, this is my friend, you should come to me. We should, we should talk this out, you know, man to man, this should be between us. He also tells them this is a neighborhood that doesn't like cops. Shortly after this, AJ tells the neighbor that he can get a duck car off his property within a week and that he's happy to take any of the other materials off his property that he would like. Patrick sees the car the next day and tells the neighbor that he could have a tow truck there that day. So of course, the neighbor tells him that since he can have the property, the car off the property that day, go ahead and take it. AJ sees this and is livid. He begins to threaten Patrick, claiming he stole from him, and that he stabbed him in the back. He didn't. It's not like he snuck into the property in the middle of the night and took the car without anyone knowing. He was given permission. He was told you can get it first, have it. I find it super interesting that after he told Patrick, we don't call the police in this neighborhood, he immediately starts threatening him with violence. And there's only three ways that people respond to threats of violence, either with threats of their own, preemptive violence, or by calling the police. Patrick called the police. The police told him, we'll split the difference. Patrick takes the car since he's the only one of the two of you with the means to remove the car, and Adrie you take the scat. AJ feels that Patrick stole from him and decides that he doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. Then the family that Patrick moves out of state. So they save the now grown, they give the now grown dog to AJ. AJ seems to take pride in rubbing it in Patrick's face that the dog that he wanted all along is his then a house three blocks away from them becomes the target of an arson patrick heads out to salvage it for scrap but aj has gotten there first since their relationship has soured aj isn't willing to share the lucrative opportunity with him and shortly afterwards three more houses burned down and people have begun to talk some suspect that aj is burning the houses down for the scrap he can get from the empty, burned-out houses. AJ immediately confronts Patrick about the rumor, causing the animosity to get worse and worse. Then there is the dog, Xavier. Patrick's wife, Jennifer, hears him crying one day. She goes over to AJ's home to check on him and decides to let herself and her sons into AJ's house. She feels that the dog is being neglected, so she just takes him. The neighbors see her and ask her what she's doing, and she says she's walking him and feeding him. Now, I'm an animal lover. I feel some kind of way when I feel like people are not taking care of their pets, but there is never a circumstance where it is appropriate for you to just break into somebody's house and take their dog. Okay, so she's 100% in the wrong for this, um, completely, no matter, she should have called animal control and said that the dog was being neglected and let them take care of it. Um, When AJ gets home, obviously, he is not happy. His dog is missing and he realizes at the same time all of his jewelry is missing. His neighbors tell him that Jennifer was in his home. He immediately goes to the house and confronts them. Jen claims that they're just taking care of his dog because they felt it was being neglected. But he wants to know, rightly so, who gave her permission to go into his house and why is all of his jewelry missing? During the confrontation, AJ pushed one of Jennifer and Patrick's sons. That was when Patrick stepped in and pushed AJ out of the house and told him never to come near his family again. AJ walked away. However, a short time later, Jennifer starts to talk about the incident with her boys and discovers that they did, in fact, steal AJ's jewelry when she wasn't looking. Now, was it right for the kids to steal the jewelry? No, this is 150% mom's fault. If you had not have broken into the man's house under the guise of, oh, the dog is being neglected, let me go save the dog, your children wouldn't have thought it was okay to steal from this man because, I mean they're following mom breaking into this man's house they must in their head be thinking okay mom broke in so why is it wrong for us to go ahead and steal so this is 100% on mom for breaking into the man's house with her children so in order to rectify the situation she walked them over to AJ's house and forced them to return the things they stole AJ however refuses to forgive them and states that he is still missing his mother's necklace The neighbors, however, greatly appreciate the gesture. JJ and Teresa Ines decide to have a party to try and deal with some of the intention and invite as many as the neighbors over as possible. AJ arrives last and does not stay for very long. Shortly after he leaves, Patrick's wallet is missing. AJ states later, when asked if he has seen it, that he did in fact find the wallet outside, but because there was no money in it, he burnt it. And that includes with identification, credit cards, burnt it. What was hardest of all for Patrick and Jennifer was the fact that in the wallet, was the birth certificate of a child that Jennifer had given up for adoption as a teenager it was the only thing that she had to tie her to the child. AJ is actually quoted as saying, I didn't get my sentimental stuff back, neither will you. Meanwhile, a new rash of arsons have hit their community and Patrick and Jennifer actually go to the police and tell them they suspect it's AJ. The police don't find anything to prove AJ's involvement and now AJ's friends have become upset with Patrick and Jennifer because once again, they've gone to the police. And this leads to a physical altercation between AJ and Patrick. Patrick starts to carry a gun after this to make sure that AJ does not assault him again. After Teresa's son and one of Jennifer and Patrick, and Jennifer and Patrick's youngest son get into a scuffle, it leads to a full-blown fist fight between the two women. This leads to Teresa putting down her handbag in the street, a handbag that allegedly contained $1,600 in cash, money that she and her boyfriend, JJ, were going to use as a down payment on a new car. Once the fight was broken up, the money was nowhere to be found. Immediately, Jennifer and her boys were blamed, even though they were in the middle of the physical altercation when the money went missing. While Jennifer was fighting Teresa, one of her sons threw a cinder block at Jennifer with his brother trying to stop it. So they tell, so Teresa and JJ tell AJ about their suspicions that Jennifer had stolen the money. AJ immediately inserts himself in the situation. Jennifer and Patrick become worried because the neighborhood seems to have become quieter than it has ever been before. So they send their sons to their grandparents. AJ confronts Patrick, demanding that he pay back the $1,600. Patrick states they don't have the money, they know nothing about the money, and they aren't giving anyone any money. That night, AJ comes back to Patrick and Jennifer's home with a large group of his friends and people from the neighborhood. Estimates are that the group was around 40 people. He is carrying a gas can. First, the group starts by throwing rocks at Patrick and Jennifer's home. Patrick and Jennifer call the police, but due to the fact that Patrick has called the police nearly a hundred times over the eight years of their feud, the police were not taking them seriously. Then, to their horror, AJ throws gas all over their truck and demands one more time for the money. When they scream again, they do not have the money, AJ lights their truck on fire. It is at this point that people with baseball bats and tire irons begin to break in their windows and try and break down their doors. So Patrick and Jennifer, afraid for their lives, arm themselves with a handgun. That is when they smell gas and see AJ has broken out their kitchen window and is pouring gasoline in their sink. He then puts a lighter through the kitchen window to light their home on fire with them in it. That is when Patrick shoots him in the abdomen now the ad think about this The man has a lighter in your window prepared to burn down your house with you in it and you aimed to shoot him in the abdomen through the window to ensure he doesn't die most people would have just shot him in the face that would have been the easiest thing to do it would have but he purposefully shot him in the abdomen to make sure he did not die. He then went outside where AJ was pouring more gasoline on the lawn, leading it up to the house to ensure the house would catch fire. So Patrick calls out to him and warns him. He then raises the lighter again, patrick has to shoot him three more times that is when the crowd starts to disperse they realize oh man we messed up this dude's got a gun you know we got to get out of here and now aj's like well damn i've been shot four times maybe i need to get out of here and he crawls to the street where one of his friends help him out and just then that is when the police show up The police begin to show up and both AJ and Patrick are charged. AJ is held at the hospital. So he's held in police custody while he's at the hospital being treated for his gunshot rooms. And while he is there at the hospital, breaking news, someone went back and firebombed Patrick and Jennifer's home like completely torched, it's gone, it's completely up in flames, it's just gone. So, AJ is charged with arson. Patrick is initially charged with aggravated assault. However, they drop the charges due to castle doctrine. Now, all not all states have castle doctrine, but castle doctrine is like Stand Your Ground, but it is very specific to trespassers. So castle doctrine basically states that you can do whatever is reasonable to protect yourself and your property. Um, So in self, it's yourself and others on your property. So yourself, others on your property, basically your property. So because he purposefully did not aim for his head and he purposefully ensured that he just wounded aj they have no grounds for attempted murder they have no grounds for ag like he made sure that everyone understood his intent was to wound him and stop him from burning down his house and so he did within castle doctrine exactly um what needed to be done to protect himself and his property and his wife. Uh, The difference between Castle Doctrine and Standard Ground is there really is there's a provision within Castle Doctrine that states that if you lure someone to your property to use Castle Doctrine, it it stops uh, working. The whatever the um, incident is, the inciting incident has to have started on your property. And that actually was a case in Texas. It was a road rage case. And the guy tricked the guy into following him to his home, so once he set foot on his on his driveway, he could shoot him. And they found that you can't; it doesn't work like that. You can't have somebody follow you to your house just so you can invoke castle doctrine. So uh, he was castle doctrine. They invoked castle doctrine, and they had to drop the charges. However, AJ is charged with arson due to uh, burning their truck and attempting to burn down their home. He, however, is only given two years probation. And to this day, when AJ speaks about what happened, he is adamant. He didn't do anything wrong. You know, they screwed over his friends, they stole from his friends, and he repeats over and over again. He burned me, I'ma burn you. He genuinely believes that he had a right to burn their house down with them in it because they. he believes. There's no proof anywhere that they stole from anyone. Like, to this day, there's never been any proof there ever was $1,600. Just the word of this couple. And my thing is, if you're going to go get in a fight on the street with a bag full of cash, like, that's common sense. I'm sorry, I'm not putting my purse down, and I'm definitely not getting a fistfight with you if I've got $1,600 in my bag. I'm just not doing it. But, um, so... To this day, he believes he was wronged. To this day, he believes Patrick should have gone to jail for attempted murder, even though he was standing in his yard holding a lighter, trying to burn his house down. He, I personally think he got off way too easy. I don't think he should have been charged with just arson. I think he should have been charged with attempted murder since he very blatantly stuck that arm through the kitchen window while they were in the house and attempted to light the house on fire with them in it. It is very clear he wanted them dead. He should have been charged with, with arson and attempted murder. Very, very plain. The fact that he feels he was wronged since they did not charge a man who was trying to keep from being murdered with murder, uh, attempted murder. Um, he's very indignant. He has no remorse for what happened. Um, he has no remorse for the fact that he brought 40 people to these people's house, uh, to basically, he basically bought a posse to try and like burn their house down, um, which was like shit they used to do back in the 1800s. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, he absolutely does not understand why anything that he did was inappropriate or wrong. Whereas, um, Patrick and Jennifer and their boys, they obviously took their, they had homeowner's insurance, they took their money and they moved to a nicer, quieter community. Uh, And out of everybody who lived on that street, the only person that's still left is AJ. That's it. He he grew up there. Apparently he plans to die there. He's, he picked a hill. And when, so when you say, is this a hill you want to die on? AJ's answer is absolutely yes. And I'm dying alone because everybody else Got the out. So, that is the story of a neighborhood feud gone horrifically wrong. Join us again in two weeks when we are going to look into a member of the FBI's most wanted, who killed his newlywed bride within a month of marrying her. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.